ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, I'm Clint Jasper. Thanks for joining me as we take a trip around a big country. This week, we're heading into the forest in the dark of night, chasing bioluminescence. We'll join a citizen scientist visiting a hotspot for fireflies that are putting on a brilliant light show during their mating season. We'll meet a creative type who's come home to the country and life on the farm and has found an outlet for her artistic expression, making candles that are selling across the country. And we'll take to the skies with an airmail pilot who's delivering posts to remote grazing properties in the outback. It's a job that has its own unique challenges. Coming straight out of, kind of flight school into this marlin where you do you know, 28 landings a day, where in the middle of summer it's really hot, you've got lots of thermals, um, you've got animals all around, like you have to shoo goats and sheep off of airstrips a lot of the time. So that was kind of an eye-opener and that's kind of what I really enjoy about being out here. Getting the mail through. We'll meet the pilot working through extreme heat and shooing animals off the runway to make sure the post is delivered in Australia's outback. That's coming up. First today, we're starting on the water and visiting a town on the New South Wales south coast that's taking a creative approach to protecting the shoreline from erosion and rising sea levels. I'm James Tugwell and I'm standing here on the shore of Wagonga Inlet in Naruma on the New South Wales far south coast. Naruma is named after the indigenous word for clear blue water. You'd be hard pressed to find a better name for this little town surrounded by turquoise glittering ocean. It's a town built on the fishing industry. The coastline around Naruma is pretty stunning. Seals frolic on the rocks for tourists or chase flathead through the shallows. So when coastline erosion threatened the low-lying township and the foreshore of Wagonga Inlet began eroding away, conservationists looked for a solution that would enhance the natural environment. Heidi Thompson from the Yurubadala Shire Council explains that's when the idea for a living shoreline came about. So the living shoreline is a pretty huge project we've been working on the last couple of years to reinstate some significant habitat back to the area. We've got a range of different habitat we're putting back in place. We've got oyster reefs, salt marsh communities and some terrestrial plantings. So this site was a degraded one and one that we thought would be ideal for this kind of restoration project rather than coming in and putting in a rock wall to protect the area from erosion and, and future inundation. We thought we'd trial something a bit more natural and that's where the Living Shoreline came about. Conservation work at the Living Shoreline has just been completed and the effects are already becoming evident. We've put in 13,000 native plants, so all of these combined to form a salt marsh community and salt marsh are actually a threatened species particularly in Wagonga estuary they've been declining since the training wall went in place and we think they've declined by threefold so to reinstate some of that salt marsh it's going to help the entire estuary really um, not just to protect the foreshore but providing habitat and and areas for our birds and fish to feed and breed. The project recently received an award for innovation at the 2023 Joint Coast to Coast and New South Wales Coastal Conference for the creativity of combining these salt marshes with two reefs, creating a three-pronged approach to buffering wave energy. While putting all three features in one project is quite creative, the two reefs alone are an exciting feat, according to Fisheries Manager for Oyster Reef Restoration, Gillian Keating. 
Oyster reefs are a very a little known uh, marine habitat that we have um, in New South Wales. It's, I guess, a bit of a forgotten ecosystem. In the late 1800s, we all but lost all of our oyster reefs across Australia and, and New South Wales is no different. 99% um, are actually considered functionally extinct. So part of this project is about reinstating or reintroducing this type of habitat into Naruma. And what's been really exciting with this project in particular is that we have created the first Angazi or native flat oyster reef in New South Wales, but also it's the first time in Australia that we've actually created adjacent intertidal and subtidal reefs. So yeah, it's a really quite a landmark achievement. And so how, how much can we expect it to change? Over time? time? Yeah. yeah, it's really quite amazing. The plants, they have grown incredibly and they're already starting to take over the, the small amount of rock toe work that we've had to do and they're just going to continue to grow and establish on site and provide those benefits for um, the plants and the other plants and animals and, and provide that natural buffer for the shoreline. Um, similarly, the oyster reef will continue to do that as well, providing that amazing habitat and all the nooks and crannies for the species, the marine species that use that. In the New South Wales Illawarra region, it's the season for spotting a special little beetle. So tonight we're off to find Atafella lychnis or the Blue Mountains firefly. Hello, I'm Justin Hunsdale, and I'm walking into the forest in the Macquarie Pass National Park, south of Wollongong. It's an area I've visited many times before, but never at night time. I'm here with citizen scientist and bioluminescence enthusiast, David Finlay, for a twilight walk through the bush and hopefully an impressive light show. And it seems we've come to the right place. This is probably the most reliable spot within the whole of the Illawarra area. We don't know just how many spots there are around the region. There used to be a lot more before the bushfires. Kangaroo Valley was a real hot spot. But uh, this is somewhere that anybody can come and experience them. You don't have to worry about accessing private property or anything like that. So, yeah, it's a really good, reliable spot. And it's an area that you know pretty well too. How, you know, do you come here around this time each year? Yeah, I'll come here this time each year for the fireflies, but I'll also come just at general times during the year for the glowworms as well. But it's just such a natural spot. It's lovely here. You know, we're walking alongside the river now. People have told me there's platypus in there somewhere. This is just a really great environment and we've really just stepped straight off the Illawarra Highway and here we are. Yeah, and, and this is, as you say, a beautiful area to visit during the day. We're here at a, at a later time than I've ever been here and it really opens up a totally different world when you come here at this time, doesn't it? Yeah, people can be a bit funny about being out in the bush in the dark. You know, you come out into nature at twilight or dark, you get to hear all the sounds of the bush all the wildlife, the wombats rustling around, all the insects come out, the birds go to bed. It's a completely different scene that we've got here right now. Now, these fireflies are a fascinating beetle and it's something that we've spoken about in the past, but this is my first attempt to, to come and actually find some in person. And it, it's such a brief window of opportunity, isn't it? Just tell us about why we're here now as opposed to another time of the year. Yeah, so this is firefly mating season. It's about four weeks of the year around the Illawarra and the Shoalhaven. If you're not out at night in the right spot 
at the right time, at the right time of the year, you're just not going to see them. It's that simple. They're, and they're only out for about 45 minutes each night during that short mating period as well. And so what sort of things are we looking for and, and what does it look like when you actually see them? This is like an Aussie version of Christmas tree lights. Like, this is incredible. I, I know it's a month before, month and a half before Christmas, but that's really what it looks like. You see all these dancing lights flashing off into the bush and then all of a sudden they're around you. There's just these silent, majestic little beetles flying around you, flashing their little yellow lights. It's absolutely gorgeous. These are the males that you see flying around. The females can't fly, they're on the ground, but the males, maybe they just get a bit tired, want a little bit more of a viewpoint. They'll just come and rest on you for a while, flash away, have a bit of look around, and then after five minutes or so, they'll fly off again. So yeah, what I say to people is, don't catch them. If you're catching fireflies, it means that they're not out there mating and making eggs and babies for the next season, so we won't have more fireflies to come. I know people see it on social media and on movies and things like that, but it's really important that you just leave them alone. We're almost uh, at the point where we need to be. The beautiful uh, river is flowing alongside us, the creek, and uh, we'll hopefully find some fireflies shortly. So, Justin, there is your first firefly. We've just walked up here, just having a good chin wag, not thinking about stuff, and almost literally headbutted a firefly. And it's early, like, it's not just early in the year, it's about it's 20 early. minutes early. Like, there's a male firefly just flitting around. That's your first firefly, that's there in, you go. That's incredible. They, like, th see, now because it's dark, and it's just this light that's drifting around, it's almost like, I don't know, it's on a web or something and you can't actually see what it's attached to, but it's, it's literally just flying around. It's the yellow light that I've seen in countless photos of yours. Yep. There it is. There it is, right there. Like and, and it really stands out, doesn't, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it's, it's not even proper dark yet. Like, it's dusk and it's just there flying around in front of us. And that's just one. If we stand here for a while, that male is going to be joined by a whole lot of its mates, hopefully, this is a really good sign and really surprising. I've got to be honest, I've shocked myself. <laughs> so it, it's now just flying off into the scrub, but because of this, this beeping light, we can follow it as far as it goes. Here we go. There's a heap behind you. And there's more down the, down the track. Yep. Look at that. So we've just walked past them. We'll, Look at them all. Well, well, they've literally, we're just talking for what? A minute, a yep. minute and a half? Yep. And they've come out around us while we're talking. And you can't, you can't miss them because... <laughs> because they're just flashing everywhere. Look, they're <laughs> off in the distance too. It's like the show has started, the lights are down, and almost on cue, that first one that we saw, and then you turn around, we, we look back at the, the track we've, we've just come from, and it's these little pings of light all the way back down, and probably maybe 10 or so that we can see already. Yeah, there's more behind you up there. Yep, yep. I can see them. Yep. There's literally more coming out as we're talking. And from what I know of this place, we're on one side of the river. The other side of the river is actually more popular. I mean, it's a little bit more pristine. The track's not there. It's, it's more wild. So we end up getting more fireflies on the other side of the river. But they, they, I think this is a real hot spot just here. We're about five metres away from us. This is yeah. a really good spot. I tell you what, this, this reminds me of if you're on a bushwalk and out the corner of your eye you see a, a flashlight and you think someone else is coming. But really, <laughs> there's just light being beamed out from, from dents in the bushland here. And, and they're just flying around on and off, on and off. The yellow light, this feels like we've kind of hit the jackpot. We've hit a very surprising jackpot. It's probably only going to get better. The sun ha has almost gone completely. There, there's a little bit of light. This is 
an incredible experience for me, I assume. This is kind of the thrill that you get from from taking people who haven't seen this into the bush like you'll be doing over the coming weeks. Every single time I come out, I'm experiencing what you're experiencing now. It doesn't dim for me. I always get that joy of seeing it, but especially what we're sharing here tonight is I've brought you out here. You're getting to see this for the first time. That gives me a lot of joy in being able to share this experience. And, And I really think that's what it's all about. And also educating you on the do's and the don'ts as well. Safety, um, protecting the habitat, protecting the fireflies. Yeah, I just get a big buzz out of it every time. David Finlay, a bioluminescence enthusiast, getting a buzz out of seeing fireflies in the bush in the New South Wales Illawarra region, where he was joined by ABC reporter Justin Hunsdale. You can see more on that story, including some photos that capture the fireflies, well, at least their little yellow streaks of light. You'll find it on the ABC homepage at abc.net.au. Just look for A Big Country. I'm Clint Jasper with you for A Big Country. Still to come, the creative hobby that's turned into a thriving on-farm side hustle for a rural New South Wales mum and the pilot who spends his day dropping into remote sheep and cattle stations to deliver the mail. For Australians living on outback sheep and cattle stations, regular deliveries of letters, parcels and newspapers connecting them to the wider world are a highlight of the week. And in the far west of New South Wales, residents have Outback Airmail pilot Harry Russell to thank for getting the mail through. So primarily what we do is uh, deliver post for Australia Post um, to sheep stations up northeast from Broken Hill. For the past year, Harry has been working as a pilot based in Broken Hill, close to the South Australian border. A big part of his job is delivering post to graziers living on remote properties. Yeah, once a week we go up and go to 26 stations, deliver you know, mail, freight, online shopping nowadays, there's a lot of that. And then outside of that, it's just scenic flights and charters. Hello, I'm Lily McCure, and I'm chatting to Harry during a break in his flying duties here in the hangar at Broken Hill Airport. He says the role, which is his first out of flight school, has its unique challenges. You know, coming straight out of, kind of flight school into this marlin where you do, you know, 28 landings a day, where in the middle of summer it's really hot, you've got lots of thermals, um, you've got animals all around, like you have to shoo goats and sheep off of airstrips a lot of the time. So that was kind of an eye-opener and that's kind of what I really enjoy about being out here. Uh, and then running scenics as well, we get to, get to go see some cool things, um, like buzzing over Lake Hare and Wolpean Pound and that sort of thing is pretty, pretty cool. Delivering Outback Mail, is that something that you ever thought you would be doing? No, I, like most people, didn't know that it was a thing uh, to deliver mail by air. But, um, and and yeah, I love my family, still think it's a bit of a joke what I do, but I think it's pretty cool, pretty lucky to be doing it. What sort of people are you meeting when you're out on these stations and how is it meeting them and, and chatting to them? Well, you don't bump into people too often. A lot of the time we just kind of leave the, um, alongside the strips, they've got like an old refrigerator or, you know, washing machine or something like that, but you leave the mail in and, and shoot off. So you're only on the ground normally for a few minutes, but uh, every now and again, people come out and, and meet you. And you know, I think being rural uh, out there, you might get a bit lonely, so they tend to have a good chat when you're out there. So, and they're all pretty nice people. They're all very genuine and friendly and 
very welcoming to me. It's good enough uh, being out there. Harry's time as an Outback airmail pilot is drawing to a close, and while he says there are definitely parts of the job he will miss, he won't miss the extreme heat. I'm not going to miss the, uh, the hot summers, I don't think, and the lack of air conditioning. Uh, but I think I'll, I'll definitely miss, you know, the, the challenges that you get with it and, you know, just the, the nature of it. It's, it's so unique and unlike everything else out there, I think it'll be, yeah, I'll miss, uh, I'll miss buzzing around to all the stations, that's for sure. How do you go in the plane? What's the setup like when it's that hot? It's rough. Um, it, it's, it's not very pleasant out there, um, you know, when it's a 40 degree day, you know, when we're doing that run, we don't get above about 1,500 feet normally, so you can't really climb out of the heat uh, or out of the thermals, so it's always pretty rough there. And then, yeah, the only kind of way to cool the plane down is uh, we've got a few little vents that just allow, allow ram air through the, the cabin, which when you get on the ground to actually stop and deliver the mail, uh, you don't have any airflow, so it gets up to about 50 degrees in there, it's basically like a little greenhouse. Uh, so you kind of hop back in the plane and you start sweating instantly and it's not very comfortable, but you deal with it. Lynn Gall lives on Langawira Station, 120 kilometres northeast of Broken Hill, and greets Harry when he touches down to deliver the mail each Tuesday. We look forward to uh, the mail every week. We still write letters. I still like writing letters. And, of course, we get our bills and everything uh, still delivered in the mailbag. We're the old school, Lily. We still like uh, to be able to, especially with newspapers, open up a newspaper and hold it and read it. So you meet the pilot every time that they deliver the mail? Yes, Lily, yes. I've done it for years. I enjoy doing it. I love people. I live in isolation and it gives me great pleasure to speak to the, uh, uh, the mail pilot, yes. And a lot of them are young fellows, just cutting their teeth, flying. Flying in the outback is challenging for them and every pilot that we've had here on our mail run has all gone on to uh, bigger and more responsible aviation jobs. It's a very good grounding, flying in the bush. After growing up on a farm near the small town of Quandiella in central west New South Wales, Sarah Ryan found herself returning to the region and starting her own family here. Yeah, I left for a while, did high school in Sydney, went to uni, lived in Sydney for a while and ended up back, back home and marrying the man down the road. <laughs> Tell me about the property. Well, our, it's pretty old. Um, Richmond's been in the family for our kids are the fifth generation here and it was passed down from Trevor's mother's side. So he's lived here with his mother and she was here as a little girl and her parents. So, yeah, it's a lot of history here. Hello, I'm Tim Fuchs and I'm chatting to Sarah Ryan on her family's farming property. Despite coming back to a farming community, Sarah says she wasn't keen to make a life as a farmer. I wasn't that interested in the farm stuff when I was growing up. I was the kid who was inside doing, making things and the creative kid who was painting and sewing and drawing. So, yeah, no, I didn't really want to do a farming job. I thought I would like to do something that was more up my alley or something creative. Now Sarah has carved out her own on-farm business, drawing on her creative side. She's making candles and selling them across the country. I've always made things and I went to art school and uh, I've always sort of been an arty person. So 
Uh, I was interested in good design and when I was looking at candles one day at a market we had here in Quandy, I thought, that doesn't look that hard. And I, But I wanted to put a candle on my shelf or my table that, that looked nice, that had a, had a certain style to it. So I got a friend who is a designer to do up a label for me that looked like an old-fashioned like tin of something you'd find in an old pantry on a farm. And that's where it, the, the idea came from. And it was only going to be just a little hobby for friends and that, but it, people liked the branding, I guess, and it grew, took off. Describe for me how you went about the process of, of making the candles. Well, I had to teach myself how to make candles. So there was a lot of Googling going on <laughs> and a bit of trial and error. Yeah, well, I could do it from home because I could order my, all my materials online and I could get everything delivered so I didn't have to go shopping for stuff. And I could just do all my research online. It's something you can just do at home. Doesn't take, didn't take up a lot of space back then. But yeah, as, as it's grown, I've had to move into the, the cottage on the place to, to do them, yeah. How do you make a candle? Well, you melt wax. <laughs> you find your container and that, that was half the thing with my... My thing. I didn't want to do the traditional glass glass jar. I wanted it to be a bit different or maybe even be a little bit disguised as something else that was on the shelf. So I looked into tins and being able to put a candle into a tin and how to make it um, sealed so it didn't leak the wax, those sorts of things. Yeah, so that's how you put a wick in it, melt your wax. You've got to have the right temperature and you choose your fragrance, which you can get ready-made or you can blend your own different types. So yeah, you mix that in let it set, and then pick a good label. So we're here on a, on a beautiful day, no noise at all. You're busy working in there. Tell me about how the company's taken off and how the business, after your initial thoughts it was going to be a hobby, all of a sudden you realised, oh, hang on, there's something that people want here. I actually thought, well, nobody wants another candle because there is a lot of, <laughs> it's a saturated market. But, uh, I, you know, people like candles, so I thought, oh, they'll make good gifts. And one day I was walking through... Canoundra, so this would have been about 10 years ago, and I had my candles with me and there was this beautiful little shop called the Bendy Street Emporium run by Kate Barclay. She doesn't have it now, but she's um, she's still over there, got a business at home, but she was really helpful with showing me how to wholesale shops because she said, this is a really lovely product and I'll, I'll stock it and you should definitely, you know, make more. And I had to ask her, how do you do wholesale? <laughs> How much, how much do you charge? So that was a really good help. And I have a, a cousin who runs um, a successful business, Red Tractor Designs out of Mudgee. So she was very helpful as well. She gave me a lot of tips about, you know, how to start and what to avoid. Um, and that's, yeah, I, I don't have a business bone in my body. So I had to like ask a lot of other people about it. <laughs> and what's it like running a business from here? There are challenges. There's, uh, you know, the post um, is very expensive to get things delivered and to post items out from the online store. And that can be, um, some people don't, it, it, it pushes up the price. So, you know, people are like, oh, I don't want to pay that postage, but that's just the way it is now. That can be a bit of a um, challenge. And then when I'm wholesaling and I've got products in shops, um, just delivering them, you know, to, I've got about I don't know, 30 stockists, I suppose, and just getting heavy boxes to places. I try to deliver a few that are local, but when you've got to post them, that's expensive. Yeah, and, you, and it's isolated. Like, you're on your own all day, but I like I work well on my own. I like to, yeah, be alone and just plug away. The idea that you can run a business like this from a farm, what's your advice to people? Yeah, it's definitely achievable. If you can find something that you enjoy doing and then 
it's just making sure it's something that can be done uh, on the farm alongside all the other activities and things you might have to help out with. But um, if you are a creative person living in the bush, there's so many opportunities and uh, ways to live that way. I think some people think if you are not in the agriculture sector or anything, you won't be able to do what you want to do in the bush, but you can because um, I I always wanted to be, you know, do, do my art and I've been able to do that as well in uh, living on a farm and I've met so many people who are other creatives in country towns that you can work with and collaborate with and so that's something I'll be exploring more next year and, yeah, doing some more projects in that way. Sarah Ryan, who's turned her hobby of making candles for friends and family into a successful business from her farm at Quandiella in central west New South Wales, where she spoke to reporter Tim Fuchs. You can read more on all of the stories you've heard on today's program. You'll find them on the ABC website. Just look for A Big Country. That's the show for today. I'll talk to you next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.